Please pray with me. God, you have spoken to us through your Son by his presence, his words, his love and compassion, and his dying and rising. Let your written word now be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. Humble us to accept your truth that all may learn and bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, over the coming weeks, we're going to listen to the words of our rabbi, Jesus Christ, as contained in the Gospel of Matthew. We're actually going to be listening into conversations that he has with his disciples as he performs also some mind-bending miracles. The purpose of these stories are for us to learn more about who is this divine man that walked earth, and knowing who he is, who are we to then who were then we to be. Our reading picks up in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Jesus has had his wonderful Sermon on the Mount. He has attracted followers. He has called his disciples. And he's gone back to his hometown, but they didn't accept him. He couldn't perform any works of healing or saving there. And in fact, the tension was so difficult that they ran him out of town. He's not welcome in his hometown. The Roman Empire is not happy with him either. Who knew that doing good could be so dangerous? And not just dangerous, it was actually quite deadly. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded by Herod, and this is something that Jesus just now learns. So listen for God's word to us as we pick up in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, as Jesus is now continuing on. Now when Jesus heard that John had been beheaded, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so they might go to the village to buy something, to buy some food for themselves. And Jesus said, they, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing. We have nothing here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he blessed, and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over, the broken pieces, twelve baskets full, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides the women and children. Here ends our reading. A couple of weeks ago, I had some friends over, or we had some friends over for dinner, and I was rather apologetic as I was serving a very simple dessert of just fresh sliced peaches and some vanilla ice cream for dessert. My friend Rob eased my mind when he said, okay, we know that you love to bake, but fresh, fresh peaches by themselves are an absolute treat. And then he said, besides, nothing will ever compare to the peach cobbler I had 40 years ago when I was hiking in Colorado. And then he proceeded to tell this story. When their plane touched down in Denver in the old Stapleton Airport, for those of you that would remember it, there's a whole slew of restaurants that line the road, and he remembered that there was an all-you-can-eat Denny's buffet. 
But they drove and they drove and into the foothills they saw McDonald's and then fewer McDonald's and fewer places that they recognized. And it even got to the point where the rest stop just had a Coke machine. But they drove on to the crossroads where they were to leave their car and start the hike. And at that place, they found just a filling station and attached to it a no-name diner. He recalls at that diner, he was getting a little agitated because after they placed the order, it seemed to take a long time for their food to arrive until they realized the diner was really busy and the diner did not have enough plates and utensils for all their customers, so they had to wait for the dishes to be washed. He said the dinner was great, it was home cooking, it was exactly what they needed in their last vestiges of civilization, this last meal. So they actually lingered longer and they ordered the fresh peach cobbler. And he said it was fresh peaches, it was homemade, it was warm, it was fresh peach cobbler. And his eyes just smiled as he said this. So just imagine that, fresh peach cobbler. Maybe you've had some recently. Now, throughout their journey, they had enough food. These were experienced hikers. Although they were young, they knew how to balance the weight of the food that they'd be carrying in their backpack because this wasn't back roads. They had to carry everything on themselves. So they knew how to balance the weight of the food with what they actually needed to eat to keep themselves fueled for the five- or six-day hike that they were going on. And then Rob continued to say, you know, we'd be there every evening enjoying or maybe just having the meal that they'd carried with them. And he said, we'd sit around and talk about what we really would like to have. And he said, usually a bunch of 20-somethings are looking for a cold beer. Or maybe that all-you-can-eat buffet, but he said to a person, and it was every night, all they wanted was fresh peach cobbler. Now, they didn't exist in scarcity. They were filled They were not burdened by an abundance. They had everything they needed. So they were in this freedom of just enough. And in that place of just enough, they also found the great joys in life. Now perhaps you have your own story of a rustic cabin that in the back has a strawberry patch with the sweetest strawberries imaginable. Or in your camping extravaganza, it is uh, s'mores by the campfire that extra treat that you only have there and only enjoy there. Traveling away from the confines of our daily life allows us to the experience being just enough and having just enough. And it's in being just enough that we are completely and fully alive. In the first century, when the Roman rule was literally killing people and the people in Jesus's village were stifling his abilities to heal, because they refused to see who he was or what he could do. Even Jesus chose to escape to the wilderness, but it wasn't just a pleasure jaunt by any means. Jesus needed to experience God and not the limitations that were foisted upon him by culture and political oppression. In your reading, which is printed in your bulletin, Jesus was not the only one feeling suffocated. The disciples went with him, and we are told crowds from the villages followed on foot, they knew he had something special to offer. Now this miracle of feeding the 5,000 is the only miracle story that you find in all four gospels. It's the only one you see in all four gospels. So obviously those that were there that witnessed what happened want to make sure that we know the truth that was revealed that day. Away from civilization, Jesus is again able to heal the sick. But as the day wanes and the peach pull naturally became hungry, The disciples thought they were being responsible to the people and to Jesus and to themselves, so they said, Jesus, you need to get those people to go away. 
maybe they can find a village, maybe they can go buy their own food, but we don't have anything. We have, in fact, the text says we have literally nothing. Now, of course, they saw five loaves and two fish, really just scraps as, quote-unquote, nothing. And it was certainly nothing that they wanted to share. That had been their worldview. It's better to secure what you have and avoid those who may choose to make a claim to it. The disciples felt this was not their problem, and not just the people's problem. These people were not their problem. So Jesus startled everyone by saying, you give them something to eat. And as usual, Jesus is operating out of a different paradigm. He is embodying God's worldview, and that's what we see. He was filled with such compassion that he saw the loaves and fishes, and he saw possibilities. And Jesus turns to God and blesses what they have. And through the disciples, they have enough. Sometimes it's not a lack of resources. More often, it's a lack of vision. Maybe it was a lack of faith. Too often we get caught up counting loaves and fishes and people, and we wonder, how did that miracle happen? I mean, that doesn't make sense. The miracle began as Jesus' compassion opened the disciples' eyes. Those disciples had only cared about their own needs, but now they are participating in feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. Jesus moved the disciples from seeing the people as problems to seeing the people as God's beloved children. The miracle that day was experiencing God's mercy that ensures that we have enough and most of all that we all are enough. Enough, it's that elusive place between scarcity and abundance. Now on the North Shore of Chicago, it's rare for us to live in scarcity. We're not very often hungry or we don't know what it's like to sleep in a home that's not safe or to not be able to get medical care when someone's injured or ill. By all measures, we live in abundance. And I don't know about you, but my closet's still really full, and we just had a great big rummage sale. That proves it. So why do we feel anxious all the time? Why does it take a wilderness experience in the Rockies or Jesus's lakeside meal to restore a sense of enough? The scarcity we feel is completely manufactured. Harvard economist Sendal Mulat Mulathan and Princeton psychologist Elder Shafir had a book recently published entitled Scarcity, in which they wrote, I quote, while scarcity plays a starring role in many of our problems, abundance is what sets the stage. See, scarcity thrives in a culture where everyone is aware of what everyone else has and always what we seem to lack by comparison. Their research focused on debunking the myths that poverty is always a lack of effort and that those who are poor deserve to be poor. They argue it's not foolish choices that keep someone poor, it's that poverty's effect leads to more and more bad choices. Living with too little imposes huge psychic costs, it reduces someone's mental bandwidth, and it distorts decision-making in ways that dig you deeper into a bad situation. They claim their research proves that the stress that leads someone to secure a payday loan is the exact same kind of stress that will lead a very successful broker to making a risky and bad trade. Their research claims it's true in any condition of scarcity and not just a lack of money. 
chronically busy people suffering from never enough time will make self-defeating choices such as unproductive multitasking or neglecting family and friends for work. And those are the same people that claim that there's never enough time to get enough sleep. Lonely people suffering from isolation become hyper-focused on their loneliness, prompting behaviors that make it worse. To them, it seems like everyone else has more friends or followers or dinner dates. And then there's the combination of the two scarcities, not enough time and not enough people, and that drives people into FOMO, F-O-M-O, -O, fear of missing out. People who suffer from FOMO are eternally connected, committing, texting, Instagramming, but yet they're never really present with anyone, and most of all, themselves or God. And then for those trying to lose weight, an empty stomach may weaken your resolves for not only healthy eating, but all other kinds of decisions because you feel like you live in scarcity. The scarcity of not having something that you believe you need, it's everywhere and it's agonizing. Somehow we need to escape the dangers of focusing on these extremes of either someone else's too much or our personal sense of not enough. Because it's in the place of enough we have well-being and creativity, and we can be innovative, and that's at their peak. In the place of enough, there's clarity of vision. We can make prudent risks to change and grow, and that's when we can really foresee threatened, threatened changes. It also takes resetting our vision and continually resetting our values to appreciate the life that we have. I know my writing is better when I'm not pushed by a deadline. My thinking is clear when I get a full night's sleep. And my entire being is restored and refreshed when I escape city traffic to the wilderness, even if it's just going for a walk in Oz Park. I know that prayer and Sabbath keeping and worship restore my sense of worth and wholeness. And worship is the respite from all the should be's and not enough that we continually hear. It's receiving God's mercy that we are reminded that we are loved and valued by God and that we are enough. When I preached a couple of weeks ago on resilience, I included what I call a little Christian lie. And that little Christian lie that I quoted was, God does not give us more than we can handle. It's a lie. It's not part of scripture. And it's toxic to our faith. Because we know that all sorts of calamities may befall us all at once, but not from God's hand. This little Christian lie has been offered too often under the guise of faith, but it can deeply hurt. That seemed to resonate with many of you in some of your conversations, your phone calls, or your emails. So I've got a few more little Christian lies we're going to talk about. The Puritans seem to etch into our national psyche the ideal to be prudent and resourceful, a belief that if you work hard and you're resourceful, you can expect to be rewarded. Described by Max Weber in the Protestant work ethic, he says that this behavior was not so much treasuring possessions one accumulated, but thinking that they were evidence that we're doing something right, particularly in God's eyes. Now the unspoken flip side of this is if you falter, you didn't work hard enough and you've probably not earned God's favor. And that slides further into what is not found anywhere in scripture of God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> You've heard that then. It's a little Christian lie that hurts. God helps those who help themselves. We cannot de deceive ourselves that what we have is a result of our own efforts alone. 
and not our God-given talents or fortunate circumstances. That little lie gives us permission to be like the disciples and send those hungry people away with saying, don't ask us to see them as anything more than a problem. The lie is used on more than just conditions of hunger and poverty. It may be said for those, God helps those who help themselves from those who suffer from addiction or suffer abuse or disabilities. It's whispered at times for those whose self-esteem is compromised at a time when sincere compassion is needed and not judgment. It's a very slippery and dangerous slope to ignore or judge other peoples into thinking that until they help themselves, no one, including God, will help them. This little lie could also lead someone to believe that if one is able to earn success, maybe we earn salvation too, and then I don't need Jesus, and I certainly don't need God. What we saw in the miracle of the feeding of the multitudes is that God helps all people. Jesus started by teaching the disciples to see the people with compassion, and then for them to teach and feed the people, not to run the people off, nor to shame them. And Jesus particularly helped all of those who could not help themselves. I want to close with a story from the poet, a nationally recognized poet and children's author, Naomi Shahib Rye. Several years ago, she was at the Albuquerque airport at the gate when she learned that her flight to El Paso had been delayed. And then she heard an announcement asking if there was anyone able to speak Arabic to please come to gate A4. And she gulped and she's like, that's my gate. I can't escape this request. There was an older woman in full traditionally Pakistani embroidered dress, just like what her grandmother would wear. And this woman was crumpled to the floor wailing. The flight attendant asked Ms. Rai, talk to her. We don't know what her problem is. We told her the flight was delayed and this is what she's done. The Ms. Nye spoke to her in halting and rough Arabic. That's all she could remember. But it was clear enough for the woman to stop crying. You see, she thought that the flight had been canceled and she needed to be in El Paso the next day for a major medical treatment. And with this, Ms. Nye stayed and calmed her and so they called her son to let him know. And the woman spoke to her son in Pakistani Arabic, and Ms. Nye spoke to him in English, and it went well. So they called her other son, just because they could. They had time. And then they decided to call Ms. Nye's father, so that this woman could speak to her father in Arabic. And of course, they found out that her father and this woman had several friends in common back in Pakistan. And by this time, they were calm, and they were laughing. And this is what Ms. Nye continues to write. <clears throat> she then pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar mounds stuffed with dates and nuts from her bag, and offered them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single traveler declined one. It was like a sacrament. Then the airline broke out free apple juice, and two little girls from our flight ran around serving it, and they were covered in powdered sugar, too. And I noticed my new best friend had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old tradition. You always travel with the plant. You always want to stay rooted to some place. And I looked around the gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, this shared world. 
Not a single person at that gate, once the crying of confusion had stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. And Ms. Nye concludes with, this can still happen anywhere. In our moment of silence, please pray with me. God, with the gift of peach cobbler and loaves and fishes and powdered sugars, we are continually offered both enough and delights to know that in our lives we are truly blessed. God of mercy, we thank you for the gift of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.